0: The reading today is taken from Romans chapter 1, verses 8 to 17, and can be found on page 1128 in the Church Bibles. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit, in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Great. Thank you, Jonathan, for
1: reading that for us. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have your word, that you have spoken to us. And so as we come to this passage, and particularly this verse, we pray that you would help us to be attentive to it, to listen to what you are saying to us, and to respond. Amen. So we come to the start of a new year. Uh, I, I expect some spring into the new year with great excitement, great relish, great joy. Maybe others are a little more sluggish, coming into it feeling a little bit tired. Well, however you're feeling, at the beginning of the year we focus in on one verse from the Bible, and we say, well, that's our verse for the year, last year. We had uh, from Isaiah 40, even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And I hope for you, if you're part of the church family, you were here over last year. I hope that that lifted your eyes to the Lord, that at times when we felt weak, you were able to lift your eyes to the Lord and look to him for strength. And this year, our verse is this wonderful verse. It is a key verse, a helpful verse to remember. And it takes us back to the core of the Christian message, the gospel. And it is good for us at the start of the year to come back to the gospel because the gospel message is, well, first of all, it is good for those who aren't yet Christians to hear the gospel message, because that is the key message, the core message of Christianity. But it's good for Christians as well. We need to keep coming back to the gospel, because the gospel message is not like other elementary truths that maybe you learnt at primary school. It is not like, uh, well, you will have learnt at primary school that one plus one is two, And you learnt that. You maybe needed a few lessons in those primary school years to drum that home. But you now don't need that lesson, I would take it. You've probably got that one. You probably would feel that time spent on that again would be a bit of a waste. But the gospel is not like that. We need to keep coming back to the gospel because we need the gospel more and more to sink into our hearts and into our lives, I heard Tim Keller, the American pastor, uh, use the illustration of a Coke machine in his apartment block. Uh, He he would put the coins in, but the can of Coke didn't come out until you bashed the side for the coins to drop down. Uh, That then meant the Coke can would be released. Similarly, he said, for Christians, we need not just to hear the gospel once, but to keep hearing it, to keep being bashed with it, so that it sinks down into our hearts and produces fruit in our lives. We need to keep hearing it. Or, to put it in other terms, Martin Luther, the reformer, speaking of the gospel of grace, said, "'Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, "'teach it unto others,' and beat it into their heads continually. The gospel is, you see, something we need to keep coming back to over and over again. Because we forget it, because even if we intellectually know it in our daily lives, in our anxieties and fears, we show that we need it to sink more deeply, and because uh, the gospel is constantly under attack. In every generation, including ours, the gospel is under attack. So we're going to look at three things this morning. First, the gospel, what it is. Second, the gospel, why we might be ashamed of it. And third, the gospel, why we shouldn't be ashamed of it. So first, uh, there you go, the gospel, what it is. And if you want to follow on the back of your sheet, um, you can see the headings there. Oh, just one last uh, word in, in terms of introduction. Uh, part of the reason for going for this verse in Romans is that we're going to come back to the book of Romans later in the year. Um, we, we carry on, we're carry we going to carry on next week onwards uh, going through the beginning of Matthew's gospel that we started going through over Christmas. We'll carry that on up to the beginning of Lent and then in Lent uh, onwards we're going to head into the book of Romans in a big way. And I'm looking forward to us doing that both in sermons and in uh, home groups and in other ways as well. We're really going to focus in on Romans. Not quite yet, well today, but then we have a bit more in Matthew, then we come back to Romans. So that's again partly why we're coming into Romans 1.16. So first off, the gospel, what it is. And we're going to think about this particularly in relation to how Paul presents the gospel in the book of Romans. Have a look again at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul says he wants to preach to them the gospel, and he says he's not ashamed of it, in verse 16. And then verse 17 gives a little bit more about the content of the gospel, doesn't he? He says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So the, the gospel is to do with righteousness. Now we need to ask, what does that mean? What is righteousness? Often when people use the term righteous today, they, they normally mean self righteous." In other words, someone who is uh, who is in the right, and normally knows they're in the right, and seems pretty arrogant that they're in the right. Maybe you have other connotations that come to mind with the word righteous. But we need to think about it in terms of the way the Bible talks about righteousness. And so, over this last week, I thought, well, how do we find out what the Bible means about righteousness? And I looked up in a. Bible dictionary uh, to see what that said and it was very helpful in what it said. It said there are two aspects of righteousness. Righteousness is both legal and relational. It is legal. The word righteous in the Bible, the word translated righteous, is very similar or similar root to the word justice. There is a justice element to it. So someone who is righteous is someone who has legally, as it were, done the right thing. To be unrighteous, therefore, is not to have done the right thing or to have done something wrong. So there is a legal aspect to being righteous. But it is not just legal. It is legal and it is relational. So to be righteous before God is to have done what is right... And so be in a good relationship with him. That is what righteousness is. If you're righteous, you're in a right relationship with God, having done what is right. But verse 17 tells us, and this may sound slightly odd, the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Which isn't just that God himself is righteous, but rather it is a righteousness that God gives. A righteousness in relationship with God that he can give to us. He can give us righteousness. Why is that necessary? Well, the first two and a half chapters of the book of Romans, which we will come back to later on in the year, explain mankind's problem. It says that mankind has rejected God replaced God and because of that rejection of God it says in chapter 1 God gives mankind over to a whole load of things gives us over to what we want to do that includes things like well verse 26 and 27 of chapter 1 things like sexual immorality and then, verse 29 to, or 28 to 32, let me read that for us, have a look at it. Chapter 1, verse 28 onwards, page 1129. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what they ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. Well, we look at that list and we think, that is pretty bleak, isn't it? And that is a description of the world that we're in. It is what we see around us. And then Paul says, chapter 2, verse 1, and this brings us up short, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. We read that list, we see others who do those kind of things, and we think, yes, they shouldn't be doing that, and then we see chapter 2 points the finger at us and says, yes, that's you too. Such that by the time we get through halfway through chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 10, you can turn the page if you want to have a look at it, the conclusion there is, as it is written, there is no one righteous. Not even one. That is the conclusion of Paul's argument as he gets to it in chapter 3 that he has done a survey of mankind and all of mankind. He says there is no one righteous, no one in a right relationship with God having done what is right. You say, well this doesn't sound like good news to me. But the good news is there is a righteousness that we can have. We can be right with God. You see, we're in big trouble as mankind, because to be unrighteous in relation to God is rightly to face his judgment. As it says in chapter 2, we are storing up wrath against ourselves for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. But the gospel is, the good news is, we can have a righteousness. We can be made right with God. There's a righteousness that's been revealed. See, you would think that to be righteous we would need to do all the right things. But Romans 1, 2, and 3 says we can't. But the gospel is you can be made righteous. Not a righteousness you earn, not a righteousness that you achieve, but a righteousness from God that can be given. How is that possible? Romans 3 explains it. We'll go into it in more detail later on in the year. But in Romans 3, Paul takes us to the cross and says that Jesus at the cross was the sacrifice of atonement, that he paid the price for us. It uses the language of Old Testament sacrifice in which an animal died in place of a person who had done wrong, bearing the death that they deserve in their place and shedding its blood. That was always a picture of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross, our atoning sacrifice, bearing the death we deserve, and therefore we can be made righteous. A righteousness we did not achieve, but that we can receive. How do we receive it? By faith. That's the burden, a major burden of the book of Romans. And of chapter 1, verse 17, if you go back to that verse again, it says, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. That righteousness received by faith, by trusting in God, not through our works, but only through Christ's sacrifice. And you might think, well, then it doesn't matter how I live. Our Romans 6 will teach us when we get there that it does matter. We'll find there that if we really believe in the gospel, it will change us. That we will then want to live in obedience to God. Not that that obedience achieves our salvation, but it is a result of having put our trust in Christ. And it is a difficult thing to do, to keep living for God. We'll see that in chapter 7 as well. The incredible news of the gospel is you and I can be made righteous. And if you're a Christian, if you've put your trust in Christ, you are righteous. You are in a right relationship with God. And as that sinks in more and more into our hearts, as that penny drops, it changes our hearts and lives. More and more. That is the gospel. Some here need to respond to that message for the first time. To lay hold of it for themselves. Not merely to say, I've heard it in the past, but to say, I take hold of that. I believe that message, that Jesus came, that I might be made righteous. I'm not righteous on my own, but I need him to make me righteous. So that is the gospel, what it is. Second, the gospel, why we might be ashamed of it. Paul states, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Which implies, of course, that he could be ashamed of the gospel. There could be reason to be ashamed of the gospel. And of course there's plenty about the gospel that we could be ashamed about. Plenty that doesn't fit comfortably that might make us keep quiet about it. What are some of those things? Well, here are just a few of the things. Maybe there are things which I've already said where you would say, well, yeah, I'm pretty ashamed of that, or I could be. You know, one of them might be, well, the, the, the beginning of the message is that we are all unrighteous. That none of us are good enough. Romans 3 states, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Well, that's pretty offensive, isn't it? Because most of us spend our lives working hard trying to do what we think is right. We know we aren't perfect. That's a common thing people say, isn't it? No one's perfect. No, but this goes further. It says we're not righteous. None of us. You you go into a school and say, you know, we're not righteous. Everyone here is a sinner. And you won't be invited back. That's pretty offensive. And there's the offense in the idea that God is angry with mankind. People don't like that. Even people within the church don't like that idea and and don't want to teach it. People assume that since the Bible says God is love, that must mean he can't be angry with people. And yet actually, of course, love sometimes requires anger, doesn't it? Not a raging anger, but a settled anger against evil and injustice. After all, those children who were kidnapped from Israel by Hamas in October, when there were interviews with parents, wouldn't it have been weird if those parents weren't in some way angry at what had happened? You would question their love, wouldn't you? For their children, if they weren't angry. Well, so too with us, that that we have rejected God, hurt one another, means God is right to be angry with us. Not a raging, uncontrolled anger, but a settled anger at evil. So that can be offensive. There's also offense in the idea that we can't make ourselves righteous. Because we like to think we can sort ourselves out. That if we try harder or help more people, we can make ourselves righteous. We can be very unwilling in lots of ways to admit that we need help, that we're helpless. Don't you find that? We hate admitting that we need someone else to do something for us, even just doing shopping, when we can't do it ourselves. And even when they do, they they kindly do the shopping for us and bring it to us or or they do something else. And we think, well, we've got to make it up to them. Because we don't want to be a burden. Well, the gospel message says that we are utterly helpless before God. We can't help ourselves. We can't make ourselves righteous. We can't make it up to God. We can't repay him for what he's done. And if we try to do so, it shows we don't understand our situation. Now, it is offensive to say that we can't sort ourselves out. And people also find it offensive That a sacrifice is needed for our salvation. That Jesus needed to die for us. In Tim Keller's book, uh, Forgive, a great book, really helpful book about forgiveness, he tells the time uh, of when Billy Graham, the evangelist, was to speak to Cambridge University students for a week of evening meetings. Uh, And when it was made public that Billy Graham was going to speak in Cambridge to, to the students, Uh, People wrote letters to the Times very upset that this fundamentalist Baptist preacher should be speaking to the brightest students about a primitive kind of religion based on blood and atonement and hell and that sort of thing. And Billy Graham admits that he, he was affected by this. And therefore for the first three nights he he decided he he would show his sort of academic ability and he quoted from all kinds of intellectuals and scholars. But he could tell as he was speaking that the message wasn't hitting home. And so he prayed and he determined to throw away his pre-prepared notes and preach about the blood of Christ on the cross. And Dick Lucas who was a uh, rector of St. Helens Bishop's Bishopsgate in London for, for many years, was there when Billy Graham preached that message. And he says this, I'll never forget that night. I was in a totally packed chancel sitting on the floor at Great St. Mary's Church with the Regius Professor of Divinity sitting on one side of me and the chaplain of the college, who was a future bishop, on the other side of me. Both of these were good men but completely against the idea that we needed salvation from sin by the blood of Christ. Dear Billy Graham got up that night and began at Genesis and went right through the whole Bible and talked about every single sacrifice in it. The blood was flowing all over the Great Hall, everywhere, for three quarters of an hour. Both my neighbours were horribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. And also must have been sure that no bright, sophisticated young British person was going to believe any of this stuff. But at the end of the sermon, to everyone's shock, 400 young men and women stayed to commit their lives to Christ. There were only 8,000 students in the student body then. It is an offensive message. Even those within the church find it offensive. Now, there's a danger in having preached that point that you might agree that it is something to be ashamed of. And therefore, we need to move on to our last point, which is why we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. There is much about it that we could be ashamed of, but yet Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why not? And the answer is in our verse for the year, isn't it? For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Isn't that incredible? God's power for salvation is in that message, the message of the gospel. This good news. Now, if you know your Bibles, you might think of elsewhere where God's power is displayed. I mean, the most obvious way, wonderful, that Mark led us in prayer, thinking about creation and how it proclaims God's greatness. As you think about creation and in the Bible, as it teaches us that God created all things, there is an example of God's power in incredible ways. And you might think of the scale of the universe or some wonderful scene that you you have observed, which just takes your breath away. And you are to look at that or look at the pictures of the universe and you are to think the power of God is immense. Where has God placed his power for you and me to be saved for eternity? Where has he put it? Which part of creation has he put it in? Has he put it under a rock? Put it under a mountain? Has he put it at the bottom of the sea? Have we got to go and get it? Where have we got to go to get salvation? He's put it in a message, in the gospel message. He said, my power is going to be in that message. You could be ashamed of it, but don't. Because there is the power of God. The power of God for salvation. And it is for everyone who believes... And there's a simplicity to that and an immediacy to it. There's a simplicity in that all you've got to do is believe. You don't have to go to the bottom of the ocean. You don't have to go to the top of a mountain. You don't have to work out some puzzle. You haven't got to go on a quest to get it. It is simple. You need to believe that message. It is a life-transforming thing when you do. But it is simple. And it is immediate. You could do it now. The power is in the message, in the gospel, and it is a power for salvation. That is, this gospel message and belief in it is the means to life, to eternal life. It is the key, it is the way in, and therefore Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. It's a glorious gospel message. Some will ridicule it, some will hate it, TV programs will mock it, intellectuals will deride it, but we will rejoice in it. And proclaim it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. You see, Paul is saying even in his day, the gospel was not what people wanted. They wanted other things. Jews wanted signs. Give us a miraculous sign. Greeks, he says, wanted wisdom. Give us something philosophical to blow us away. But Paul says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to preach Christ crucified. That's what I will do. I'll give them the gospel message. Because that's where God has chosen that his power for salvation will be. So be unashamed of the gospel. Be unashamed of it. It's God's power. We don't need to be embarrassed by it. We don't need to change it or hide it. We don't need to make it more palatable or excuse it we're unashamed of it, proclaiming it as clearly as we can. For us as individuals, that's going to mean we're going to keep looking for opportunities to tell others the gospel message. It can be hard, can't it, to keep going, particularly if they don't want to hear it, don't like it. We keep going, sensitively and gently, but unashamedly. And as a church, we keep proclaiming the gospel, Trusting the gospel in whatever context we can, and we seek the Lord to give us wisdom to do what is best for the proclamation of that gospel. Well, I wonder how you need to respond personally to that. Let me just give you a few moments. Are there things you need to do? Maybe you need to take hold of the gospel. Maybe you need to uh, resolve with Paul to be unashamed of it. I'm going to give you a few moments just of quiet. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel message. Thank you for that good news. That we can be made righteous through Christ... And we pray, please, Father, for those here today who have not yet taken hold of that righteousness that Christ offers to us through faith in him. Father, please turn their hearts to him to take hold of that gospel, to receive salvation. And we pray also, Father, for those of us who have taken hold of it that we would be unashamed of the gospel message. But look to share it faithfully, sensitively, And clearly, help us, Father, as a church, lead us, we pray, and guide us into this year that we would be unashamed of the gospel and do what we can, do what is best to see that gospel proclaimed. Amen.